This week we discuss the hippie trail in Asia, the emptiness of materialism, and royal Nepalese temple balls. Coming up right now on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. Everybody, my name is Mila Jansen, and I'm from the Pollinator Company in Amsterdam. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. That was Globular with Temple of the Pollinator. Why Pollinator? Well, it just so happens my guest for this week's episode has a company called the Pollinator Company. Yeah, that's right. Mila Jansen, a.k.a. the Hash Queen, was my guest. I was fortunate enough to run into her at this year's edition of Spanibus in Barcelona. Due to her busy schedule, however, I couldn't interview her on site, but I did manage to get in a cheeky phone interview a few weeks afterwards. Yes, she gave me her number, and no, I will not be sharing it. In case you weren't familiar with Mila, she's what you might call a pioneer in the traditionally male-dominated cannabis industry. Before there were coffee shops in Amsterdam, she started a tea house where cannabis was openly consumed but not yet sold. However, this was in effect the precursor for the now widely known coffee shops. She became an entrepreneur in the 1990s, selling her own hash-making devices. Her inventions have changed the game and have been influential in shaping this very field. Most recently, at the We Are Mary Jane exhibit at the Barcelona Hash and Hemp Museum, she was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world of cannabis. She's a mother, grandmother, entrepreneur, hash connoisseur, author, world traveler, and cyclist, and she has a lot of stories to tell. I asked her about her background and how she got started down this path. Well, let me see. In uh, 68, uh, we decided to, uh, that it was a good thing to be dropping out. Timothy Leary was uh, like a guru, and we decided to leave and uh, hitchhike to India. And I'd been reading about uh, philosophy before, so I was very interested in Hindu and Buddhist philosophy. And we really went there in the 60s. I hitchhiked most of the way. Um, 
looking for a better way to live. We were not happy with uh, materialism and all the fighting for economic boom that was happening over here. That seemed rather hollow. And we were looking for a better way to live. And we seem to have uh, pretty much found that in India. It was a haven, and uh, I really liked it there. I stayed for 14 years with my kids, and uh, we had a great time, and I had a time to study as well Buddhism as Hinduism. I had smoke a lot because, of course, uh, in the mountains in the north where we lived, Everybody smokes hash, and uh, in different countries, I experienced uh, different ways that this is being produced. Like up in uh, Manali, Kulu Manali, people tend to rub the plants between their hands. And in places like Afghanistan, they sift it more. And everywhere we went, uh, went we used to help the locals and. Uh, so when in 88 I came back to Amsterdam, I had some knowledge of how hash was made. Mila's path down Cannabis Lane started in the 1960s during the time of Timothy Leary, who she referred to as a guru. You know Timothy Leary, the Berkeley-educated Harvard professor of psychology who advocated for the exploration of the therapeutic potential of LSD and other psychedelic drugs under controlled conditions. Some of his catchphrases included, Turn on, tune in, drop out set and setting, and of course, think for yourself and question authority. In Mila's case, her decision to leave the economic comforts of Western Europe was motivated by what she calls the hollow economic boom, combined with her dissatisfaction with materialism, which Leary was also critical of. This attitude took her to India, where she spent over a decade, and here's where she learned the tricks of the trade as far as hashish was concerned. Now, before I continue with Mila's story, I wanted to clear up any confusion about what hash or hashish might be. Some people think it's a drug related to cannabis or marijuana, or that it's a specially processed drug derived from the cannabis plant. It is indeed derived from the cannabis plant, and there is some processing involved to make it. In essence, however, it is nothing more than the compressed resin glands, or trichomes, found throughout the plant. You know, those tiny sparkly things that look like crystals on your favorite bud. Those get collected, traditionally through hand rubbing or the dry sift method, both of which Mila mentioned. In the first one, you literally run your hands up, down, and past flowering female cannabis plants and rub your hands to collect the dirty sticky goo that is amassed on your palms and fingers. Alternatively, dried buds get grated or sifted through a screen where the trichomes fall through and get collected as keef which looks like a greenish-brownish powder. This then gets compressed, and voila, you have yourself some hash. There are, of course, numerous ways of making hash, and the technology keeps developing, but traditionally these have been the most common ways of producing it. Also, I wanted to add that it is not by coincidence that the path Mila took to India in the 1960s, also known as the Hippie Trail, ran through countries known for their hash culture, at least once you get to the Asian side of the journey. So it can be argued that the hippie movement and hashish go together hand in hand. So Mila spends a few years in India and decides to return to Amsterdam, which by now has a more tolerant approach towards cannabis compared to the rest of the West with its increasing drug war. So what is the scene in the Netherlands after her return? 
I came back to Amsterdam, and suddenly Amsterdam was filled with coffee shops that all sold weed. But never having really smoked weed before, I didn't immediately take to it. And as I didn't particularly like the varieties of hashish that were being sold in these uh, coffee shops, I decided to try and make my own smoke. I was growing uh, at that time, and um, we started off on a flat screen and kind of waffled the material above the flat screen. And slowly, slowly, some of the crystals would fall through the screen, and then you could collect them and press them together and have a piece of ash to smoke. We were doing it like this until one evening I was standing in front of my clothes dryer from the washing machine, the dryer part, and I suddenly figured that what all these clothes were doing tumbling around in that drum was more or less exactly what I was doing by hand over a screen. So the next morning we got a second-hand clothes dryer, took out the heater, put a screen around the drum, threw a bunch of material inside, and lo and behold, five minutes later, there was a faint, there was a layer of crystals lying at the bottom of the clothes dryer. So we developed this, and I started in the end producing these machines called the pollinator. And uh, I think that's probably also part of why they tend to call me the hash queen, because it was the very first mechanical method of separating the crystals. All these people who had been making hash for thousands of years in the East, they did it all manually. There had never been a machine to separate these crystals. So I think that was important, especially for the growth of making your own hashish in Western countries where nobody would have had the uh, time or the uh, want to spend hours and hours just to make a few grams. If anyone has seen the TV show Weeds on Showtime, the idea of using a dryer for making hash might seem somewhat familiar. Perhaps it was Mila's story that inspired Hollywood writers as well. well. As she mentions, cannabis flower was quite the commodity in Amsterdam, but her preferred form of THC wasn't quite up to snuff in terms of quality. So what do you do when you cannot buy what you want? You make your own. Necessity is the mother of invention. Though, in this case, the actual technique was developed by chance. We'll put that one under happy accidents. So Mila had a good idea, and just happened to be in a place where she can develop that idea and share it with others. And how did that work out for her? Like within a year of developing the pollinator, it started becoming available in the local coffee shops here in Amsterdam. And people started ordering these machines from all around the world. In fact, you were talking about uh, marijuana being uh, available all around the world. Well, I can look at the map where I sent all my machines, and they are all around the world. Even in countries where it's totally illegal to grow, people are still ordering pollinators or later the isolators and bobulators. So everywhere they're growing, that's for sure. And I'm very happy about that. And I love the way things are developing nowadays, especially in countries like the States that for so long had this terrible war on drugs. And hopefully uh, 
other countries will follow suit, especially now that uh, the worth of medical marijuana is being researched and looked into, and it can do marvelous things. I know from experience, I rub my arthritic joints with CBD cream every other night. Not the worst feeling in the world to know your products are literally found all over the globe. She may not get credited for spreading hashish around the world. That title would go to the late Howard Marks. But she has played a role in facilitating its production on a domestic scale. I do get the impression, however, that it isn't the sales of her products themselves that make Mila happy, but rather the fact that they are an indicator of where and by whom hash and cannabis in general are being consumed. All Mila has to do is look at her shipping records to know that cannabis is truly a global commodity, and its legal status isn't stopping people from consuming it. Now, I'm not encouraging anyone to break the law or engage in unlawful behavior with respect to drugs, but I did want to point out the ineffectiveness of prohibition and the war on drugs itself. The ultimate goal of any type of drug-related prohibition is for people to stop buying and using a particular substance altogether. Every time prohibition has been attempted, at least in modern times, it has failed tremendously. Just look at the prohibition on alcohol in the 20th century. And if the sales of Mila's products are an indicator of how effective cannabis prohibition is, you can be quite sure that this will also end in spectacular failure, which in many ways has already shown itself to be. And Mila's use of CBD cream is yet another example of how trying to ban all things cannabis will ultimately backfire. I was also curious about how Mila dealt with the stigma of cannabis use, especially considering she started her company in a time where the war on drugs was in full effect, and even mentioning hashish would get you a lot of angry stares. I quite like to be sort of incognito and not stick my head out too much and just quietly go my way and smoke my hash every day and make it when I have time. And and it's really sad, this whole stigmatization of uh, people who smoke. I hope one day they will learn. I mean, recently in uh, Holland, they took uh, medical marijuana off from the... Uh, medical um, health uh, companies, which is really stupid. And they said, yeah, it hasn't been proven that it does any good at all. I mean, what are all these tests and uh, researches on about? I just hope one day they'll wake up and uh, things will become legal and people can just use what they want to use without having to uh, feel that they should keep quiet about it. No, I would not collect people around me that uh, <laughs> I could not relate to. <laughs> so, sure, when uh, uh, when the cops are there, I uh, don't have a big mouth. I usually don't have a big mouth anyway. It's not really my style. I just like to go ahead and do stuff. And, yeah, and actually, recently, uh, recently, it took me eleven years. I wrote a book about it called Mila, How I Became a Hash Queen. And that's available here from Pollinator Company. And then I could sign it or people can just get it on Amazon. And it tells all about the history of uh, my history about hashish. I even won the best product of the year award with that book. 
because <laughs> I never won anything for any of my uh, machines or the bags or anything. But now I won the first prize for the book. So that's good. I have a high level of respect for people who achieve success, but do so while keeping a fairly low profile. Which is not to say you shouldn't be vocal about issues you are passionate about, but some methods are more effective than others. Writing a 584-page autobiography with 162 photos is certainly a very effective, yet subtle way of dealing with cannabis stigma. At least the organizers of Spanibus think so. Also, being part of an exhibit that showcases women in the cannabis industry will most definitely have an effect on the way people perceive cannabis users. There was one question that came to mind while learning about Mila's history, however. Why does she prefer hash over cannabis flower, despite the fact that both are abundant in Amsterdam? I uh, prefer smoking ashes, actually, because you're not smoking all the dead plant material. You're just uh, taking the essential part. So for me, it seems kind of uh, unnecessary to smoke a whole bug. And I was just not used to it because it was not around in my life till uh, I was 45. So by then I'd smoke ash so long, I never really got to, to like uh, the taste of it. And I think maybe uh, ash and uh, marijuana is sort of like wine and beer. They both contain THC and other cannabinoids and terpenes, they both get you high, but uh, the same way a beer drinker will seldom have a wine, and a wine drinker seldom have a beer. It's a bit the same with uh, cannabis and uh, wheat, but I don't necessarily think one is better than the other. It's just maybe personal taste. I smoked for the first time in 1964. And all you could buy in Amsterdam was ashes. It would come from Lebanon or Turkey or Iran, Afghanistan maybe. But uh, there was no weed at that time at all. And um, so I smoked, started smoking ashes and then went to India in 68 and stayed there till 88 more or less. And never had I run into any weed in all these countries, actually all the way from uh, Morocco to China. They only smoke hashish in all those countries, only in the south, like maybe like Thailand and southern India, there might be some weed. But whether you talk about uh, Kazakhstan or, or all these countries, Iran, everywhere, people were smoking hashish. So it turns out, all along the so-called hippie trail, hash was the only form of THC you could get. So for Mila, it was the only option, but that option then became preference. For whatever reason, we just didn't cut it for her, though there might be some science as to the difference between consuming the two forms. If you remember that hash is concentrated trichomes, which contain most of the cannabinoids found in the plant, then the effect will most likely be a little stronger than smoking just flour. If you ask a connoisseur, you will probably hear that hash has a clearer, more cerebral effect, even if the cannabis plant itself induces a more relaxed effect in the user. By forgoing the remaining plant material, you not only change the flavor and aroma profile, you alter the so-called entourage effect, meaning the compounds in the flower will act differently than if only certain cannabinoids are concentrated and then consumed. But there is something to hash that makes it unique with respect to other forms of cannabis. 
in places that Mila mentions, so for example, India, hash is the original concentrate in the form of charas, or hand-rolled resin. You can argue it was the first contact between humanity and cannabis, as getting your hands sticky and dirty is pretty much unavoidable when handling the plant. The act of gently rubbing female cannabis plants in the flowering stage has been, and will remain, the simplest and most effective method of collecting resin, despite all the technological developments. This special relation will not be changing anytime soon either. And much like beer, there are craft versions of this as well. Just Google the term Royal Nepalese Temple Ball to see what I mean. Mila also states that hash and flour are somewhat similar to the way people prefer beer over wine and vice versa. Personally, I know people who enjoy both to a high degree, but I would argue it boils down to what you have been conditioned to consume. But ultimately, we're talking about the same plant, and I don't see any fault lines developing among consumers in the cannabis community. However, I did wonder if she has any experience with the latest version of cannabis concentrates, specifically dabs. Yes, yes, I do in the States, and uh, it's not for me. For me, it's like you smoke a whole joint in one toke, and it's not really what I like to do. I like to uh, be high all the time a bit, but I don't know the time I have to be out a bit. And I find uh, with the dabbing, I will do it occasionally, and I certainly have done it, but it's not my daily cup of tea. I've tried, uh, I've tried all kinds of extracts and sauce and everything, but I just like uh, basically uh, non-solvent uh, hash. Uh, that's it. Non-solvent hash. That's it. And not surprisingly so. In a previous episode of the Critical Grass podcast, I did discuss the different forms of dabs and most of the commercially available varieties, so your shatters, waxes, sauces, sugars, live resins, and so on, involve some chemical process where a solvent is mixed with the harvested plant material and subsequently purged. While the vast majority of the solvent is removed during the purging process, a few parts per million may remain. Now, this is a minuscule amount that shouldn't have any ill effect on the user. In fact, you might even be inhaling more solvents by lighting your cannabis with a butane lighter. However, in today's increasingly health-conscious world, any process involving hydrocarbons in cannabis might carry with it a negative connotation. One of the biggest controversies today in legal cannabis markets is the presence of harmful additives in vape pens. A report published in the Journal of Complementary and Alternative Medicine in 2017 showed that certain common additives to vape pens, specifically propylene glycol and polyethylene glycol, may pose certain health risks. If heated beyond 230 degrees centigrade, they are both converted to formaldehyde, a known carcinogen. Concentrates may additionally contain higher levels of pesticide contaminants. Now, such situations can be avoided through third-party lab testing and product labeling. Or you can just forgo solvents altogether and take the traditional route of handmade hash. Another increasingly popular form of concentrate is rosin, which is pressed flour and or keef, though this method requires a heating device and some type of press. However, it is completely solventless and, as a result, could be an excellent alternative to the petrochemical-based methods of extraction. Users also report of superb flavors and aromas. Nonetheless, we can be quite sure Mila won't be swapping her hash for a different product anytime soon. 
And last but not least, with all the traveling, meeting different people, and being at the forefront of cannabis advocacy, I asked Mila what she looks forward to most nowadays. Hanging out with my granddaughter, probably. Much <laughs> 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 related to cannabis. Yeah, I like going to the fairs and meeting new people and... Uh, uh, sharing experiences and sharing a smoke. I'm an old party party girl from Goa still. I don't know, I just lived my life and that uh, I suddenly, with the invention of this machine, now become like a, what you said, like an icon. It was never part of my plan, you know? <laughs> it's kind of surprising all this is happening. Uh, I mean, I didn't invent this machine till I was 50. So... It wasn't the thing that happened when I was young. So it sounds like Mila wasn't even looking for the attention and fame she's earned through her work for the cannabis plant. But I definitely think she deserves it, and her story is certainly an inspiring one. Sadly, we have to end the conversation, but not before saying farewell to our guest. Mila Jensen, thank you so much for uh, taking uh, time out of your busy schedule to chat with me. It was an honor and a privilege to do so. Uh, and uh, I wish you uh, all the best with your pollinator company and wonderful start to your weekend. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's a wrap for episode 22. Big thanks to the hash queen, Mila Jensen, for the interview. You can find more information on her and her products at www.pollinator.nl. As always, if you enjoy the show, feel free to share the podcast on your favorite internet. If you want to support the show financially, you can go to www.patreon.com slash criticalgrass. My name is Bogdan. I'll be back soon with yet another episode. Keep thinking for yourselves and questioning authority. Peace.